Hi, my name is James Andrella, and you are listening to the Back to Human podcast. On today's episode, I have special guest, Dr. Artur Rahimov. He is the world's leading inventor of breathing retraining methods and the developer of the Buteco method, as well as author of Normal Breathing, The Key to Vital Health. And today we'll be, we will be discussing how you may not be breathing properly and just a little bit more of like the physiology behind breathing. Uh, I'll be talking about carbon dioxide, oxygen, and yeah, without further ado, welcome to the show, Dr. Artur Rahimov. Yeah, thank you, James. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. <laughs> how did you come across... Um, Breathing less, I guess that'd be the easiest way to put it, because I know there's a lot of different breathing practices and people often refer to it as deep breathing. But how did you come across the fact that we are a lot of people are chronically hyperventilating and how this may be leading to some of the health issues that they're experiencing? Uh, Well, personally, myself, my journey started in the year 2000 and I just discovered the book that was written by uh, one Russian practitioner. He he was uh, actually very famous about like 20 years ago before that, because he brought the method uh, from the Soviet Union. He was trained and spent a lot of time with Dr. Buteka. And he moved to Australia, then he was in the UK and also traveled to some other countries like Ireland, the United States, where he trained a lot of people. And many of those people also were trained as practitioners. So that was his book, uh, written actually in English, <laughs> even though he was like kind of uh, originally from Russia. And uh, again, uh, you can recognize that I, I'm also like a quite heavy <laughs> Russian accent, even though I, I live in Canada for 28 years now. So um, I just yeah found this book and like started to check was like completely kind of counterintuitive ideas about that. To be healthy, we need to breathe slow and less, less air and to have more carbon dioxide. And that was a central ideas in this book, as well as this simple DIY, uh, we call it control pause or breath holding time, special breath holding time test that our students do to monitor and measure their progress. So, and what uh, kind of fascinated me myself, I had also like several various uh, quite serious like health problems at the time, like a lot of infections, very high fluctuations in blood sugar in the morning. So, and uh, I applied this technique, a blocked nose uh, could be another one, very long sleep, a lot of fatigue, like a variety of symptoms. And uh, in a few days, like I, I solved, uh, I don't know, maybe 80, 90% of them. <laughs> that was really impressive for me, like in, in a few days, really. Like, and my uh, pause, control pause increased from about 10 to 30 seconds. Also in a matter of uh, like just several days, it took me time. Uh, it was way, way uh, slower. It took me longer time to progress further up. It took, like, it's a long story to explain. Mm-hmm. But uh, what I, I was interested about, like, okay, if, if this technique, what would be other ideas and uh, related maybe information to that, because uh, what Dr. Buteke discovered, it's not just like, uh, as you mentioned, 
doing some briefing exercises. He was particularly specific about the idea that uh, the method he developed, it's not about doing exercises, even though we can be absolutely necessary for, for progress, like necessary component for students to progress. But uh, what he was talking about all the time and kind of emphasizing with his practitioners and students that it's more important how we brief the remaining 23 hours or whatever, 22 hours of the day, particularly during sleep, for example, or when we are not aware about our breath. So, and here we go into the area of so-called automatic or unconscious, or Dr. Buteka sometimes called puzzle briefing. So the briefing that exists day and night without our awareness about it. And so here, his ideas was actually also in a way very simple because what he suggested that people need to brief uh, in accordance with medical norms, like nothing, nothing kind of funny or nothing kind of special, you know, like some special like diet, food, exercises, and so on. So just go back to medical norms, and that will allow you to have a good health or normal health. So when Dr. Buteka started to test these ideas, like he developed them already. I think like second half or fifties probably where these main ideas became quite clear to him. But in sixties, he was the manager of the respiratory laboratory in Novosibirsk. And this is a very large scientific center. We have like so-called Akadem Gorodok, and this is like city of basically like city of academicians, we can translate it. And it's it's very famous in Russia among like scientists of what we would know this place because there are many, many uh, research institutes located there. And so that was one of the research institutes where he worked for. And uh, he discovered that actually all these chronic diseases, again, like including, of course, main killers, and that's like what 70% of people die from. That would be, uh, let's say, heart disease and uh, conditions related to heart disease, hypertension, and so on. Then uh, diabetes and related conditions, cancer and asthma, uh, bronchitis. COPD, those conditions. So these are would be like among four main killers that all these conditions respond really well in terms of people get fewer symptoms and eventually we achieve a medical norm for respiration. They would not require any medication and they would not have symptoms, even though this path can be really long. Uh, really long, I mean like, well, sometimes could be few people who might get it in well, one and a half, two, three months probably would be among shortest time, but commonly it would take many months. And I knew people who, for whom it may take some years before they uh, normalize the breathing pattern. So therefore, Dr. Kuteka kind of, uh, I already explained it in the past on my YouTube channel, made two diff quite different discoveries, I would say, and that maybe it would cost, can cause confusion even among practitioners or like kind of advanced students, because one discovery related to the fact that people are able to overcome their health problems by retraining the breathing pattern. So we breathe in a certain way, and he discovered, and this is true, I know, according to dozens of studies, that people breathe too much. They have chronic hyperventilation. I have like normalbreathing.com has a table with about 40 studies where Western doctors measure exact numbers, how much people breathe in terms of mean ventilation. And so this is what this first discovery was about the ability of briefing retraining to fix these health problems. So that's one part. But another part relates to like kind of a different thing, which is the Boteca method itself. And this is a set of activities. 
So you do, let's say, you do like this briefing exercise, and you do physical exercise in this special way, then you sleep in a special way, <laughs> with diets and so on, so on, like many, many, many factors you would do. Depends on the practitioner, on the student, like how much they're going to apply. Like this, in total, could be, of course, I would say probably tens of different factors and variables which influence our respiration, our automatic unconscious breathing. So there are two parts uh, which kind of, uh, in my view, uh, reflects two main discoveries made by Dr. Buteyko. So like one again, to take a method as a set of activities and another this kind of more general discoveries related to abilities of breathing training to deal with again, like chronic lifestyle diseases or diseases of civilization for which again, so many people suffer from. So you saw results pretty quickly yourself mm -hmm. and um, you were mentioning asthma. So with asthmatics, they feel like they can't get enough oxygen. So whenever you come across uh, an asthmatic that you're working with, is there like an element of fear that comes to them because you're telling them to breathe less? And what people don't really understand is that uh, the more that you're breathing in, like the more breaths that you're taking per minute, the higher your respiration rate is, you're actually not oxidating your tissue because the carbon dioxide would be the actual um, important, I guess, nutrient, I'll call it a nutrient, the mm -hmm. molecule that you need, not so much the oxygen. So is there an element of fear when you're trying to teach people this re-breathing, uh, retraining their breathing? Yes, absolutely, yeah. There is certainly the element of fear, like kind of maybe psychology related. That's why there are kind of, um, I would say it is addressed on different levels, on many levels. So one of them is that I already mentioned that, uh, and I always kind of uh, use this when I do presentations, lectures, and like talks to, to the public. I always mention these studies and show these tables, graphs, like showing the numbers that, let's say, if we talk about uh, minute ventilation, so minute ventilation would be the parameter, uh, frequency would also correlate with that as well, like how many breaths we take a minute would be, of course, higher in people who have chronic disease. But usually, like kind of from a physiological viewpoint, it would be more correct because also kind of doctors would also be more, more kind of um, uh, more attentive to this value called minute ventilation. And in terms of uh, uh, numbers, normal numbers would be, let's say, Medical norm is about six liters a minute. Some older textbooks may say four, five, five, six, four, six, four, seven. Because I've seen many, many old medical textbooks. New medical textbooks, physiological textbooks might give a little high number, six, eight, six, nine, kind of seven, nine liters per minute. But we would be all, all still in single digits. And if we look at numbers for asthmatics, it would be 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, depending on the study and so on. So numbers would be about twice, two and a half, maybe times larger than the medical norm. Uh, not only asthma, of course, again, like all these other diseases would be a very similar picture. So, but in relation, going back to fear, so I, I mentioned this factor where I would provide this information, okay, this numbers, you see, like asthmatics breathe too much. Now let us think about uh, that from a medical or physiological viewpoint, what is going on in the body when a person breathes too much air. So when we, then the next step would be, uh, logical to discuss, okay, 
are we going to have more oxygen in tissues or cells of the body, cells of the brain, heart, and other like organs, let's say, vital organs of the body, in, in, in the case when we breathe more air. So would it be right or wrong? And also here we can again kind of approach it on two different levels. One level would be, we can, I can mention hundreds of studies and I have many of them in my books on the website as well, where doctors simply measure how much the amount of oxygen using uh, special devices, how much is oxygenation of the brain, heart, kidneys, liver, spleen, colon, all these studies are done most commonly on animals, of course, on horses, dogs, other animals. And most studies probably would be also quite old, like 40s, 50s, 60s, where kind of more fundamental physiological studies done a long time ago. But there's still like some replications done more recently as well, maybe with less intrusive techniques as well. Uh, so therefore, uh, we can address it on this level. Then we can also, okay, do another, that would be probably third way how uh, Soviet doctors and Russian doctors and how Dr. Buteyko trained uh, practitioners himself, because in the past, and Dr. Buteyko was using quite intensively so-called hyperventilation provocation test. And uh, I have it described again in my books of practitioners and on the website. And it was quite common among physicians or like medical doctors, GPs, so-called general practitioners, decades ago, probably now not so much. Uh, so what we did in the past, uh, this test was used in order to identify the most vulnerable system of the body. If we take people, uh, let's say a group of people with certain conditions and ask them to hyperventilate, what is going to happen with this group of people in terms of, okay, what we are going to feel? in terms when we hyperventilate, when we breathe more air. And it was discovered that this test up to, in many cases, 100%, few studies maybe 95, 98% specific in terms of what is the main symptom, what is the main like health condition that person is complaining about. Let's say, if, again, take a large group of people with panic attacks, that would be, again, again 98%, 100% of them, according to various research studies, are going to experience panic attacks because of voluntary hyperventilation. Asthmatics would be again 95-100%. People with epilepsy would get seizures. So like, okay, this is highly specific for them. People with stroke, well, stroke would be a bit dangerous condition to try because you can understand so uh, because of that. But people, let's say, with hypertension would get uh, angina pain, so people with heart disease. And that would be, again, like a very different uh, symptoms we experience. Asthmatics in return would have chest tightness, feeling that we don't have enough air, shortness of breath, so-called, and maybe we'll have some wheezing as well, like if you, especially doctors put stethoscope to listen. And that would be, again, highly specific in relation to that. So the next step, this is what Dr. Buteyko would do in 1960s, for example, as well as 70s, 80s later. He would ask this, uh, his patients, to breathe less, to breathe a little slower and less. Let us, let us calm down your breath, like not take as much air as you want, little bit less air, and then relax to exhale. Take a little bit less air than you want, than your body wants to take, and relax to exhale, so that you are going to accumulate or experience some shortage of air, some air hunger, but to, to very light degree so that you can relax, because it works only when people are able to relax. If you try to suffocate yourself too much, which we may do, let's say if you create very strong air hunger by, uh, you would create a very strong air hunger if you breathe, let's say, twice less air 
that you have right now. That would create a very strong level of air harm. But that would not allow for most people to relax, especially if they are kind of new students, if they're just kind of learning that. With time, it is, it's possible because you can train your body how to relax even with stronger level of air hunger. So, but yeah, that would be the third level, how to overcome this fear you mentioned uh, in relation to people, let's say, with asthma, how you can ask them. And at the beginning, I found it's extremely common like when students do the very first, the very first lesson uh, of brief of boutique exercises, and we brief a little bit less there, we order, so it's very like, Strange, and I, I never had this sensation in my life before because yeah, nobody asked them before. They would do like through the nose, through the mouth, hyperventilation. Sometimes maybe before diving, sometimes maybe for whatever other reasons. But breathing a little bit less air—that's again a very uncommon experience, and that's why again the sensation is a bit strange, unusual. But after two, three attempts, like people just like totally comfortable with that, and we just get, of course, very friendly with that as well. So most people start liking it because it, uh, for many people, it may just allow them to reduce medication two times or maybe completely get rid of bronchodilators, for example, in case of asthmatics. So they can, you can reproduce whatever symptoms people are feeling by getting them to hyperventilate. Yes, yeah, that's that's why it was called hyperventilation provocation test, and that's the medical name that was used by probably by hundreds of doctors on the West. So hyperventilation provocation test—that's how it became known historically. But again, for whatever reasons, I don't know. Maybe it's technology. Maybe just too simple, you know, for, for modern doctors you know, to, to ask patients hyperventilate. They use like fancy devices and complicated tests instead of this simple method. So yeah, that's. And do you find that whenever you're working with a new patient, that they're actually able to make the connection that okay, maybe why I'm experiencing this is because I'm breathing a little bit too much. Because I know there's another popular breathing technique. It's called Wim Hof. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Mm -hmm. And the beginning of that is 30, 30 to 50 quick breaths. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not too familiar with with um, whoever they're working with, but I could imagine that a lot of their symptoms would come up then too. No. Well, uh, well, the, like two questions you asked here. Yeah, like, uh, the first one. So, second one. Yeah, I can explain the pop a, a little bit later. Now, uh, so what uh, this hyperventilation test? Yeah, it is uh, highly specific, as I mentioned. So, and that would. Uh, Again, like since it was used by doctors, yeah, we just uh, uh, people would normally uh, what would happen again when Doctor Buteka would do this test and he described it many many times because I myself I don't do this test with my students, but students still understand the idea of breathing class and we like the idea because we notice very fast, particularly asthmatics are going to notice very fast because the method teaches them to use this technique of reduced breathing instead of using the medication. Now, another great part, kind of uh, maybe complementary part to this fact is that uh, modern doctors, or probably all over the world these days, they would teach asthmatics to use the medication on demand. I'm not talking about like steroids when we use cortisol, like some heavy medication would be severely sick people, but for majority, like 90% or more of asthmatics when we use all these bronchodilators. Ventolin and so on. Uh, 
So we are used on demand in terms of when we experience symptoms. Okay. So doctor, what Dr. Boutique is addressing, okay, let us use uh, this simple drinking technique instead of medication. And uh, here what happened that overwhelming majority of asthmatics would not require medication, probably not at all. Probably majority would not uh, would not at all if they have mild or light asthma. So, and that's why the technique became so kind of uh, popular among asthmatics, and why on the West and around the world, the Bodega method is commonly known. Oh, like if you ask many, many people, what is the Bodega? Oh, that's the treatment for asthma. <laughs> so that's maybe, because uh, clinical, uh, well, many, many clinical trials, uh, six randomized controlled like, clinical trials on asthma done on the West already years ago. There are some newer studies done as well, more recently. Which were not maybe like as rigorous, like according to medical standard, but we still have all these positive results related to solving asthma. The problem with trials, as I see, like I also describe it, it's really uh, very difficult, first of all, for people to achieve the norm, even medical norm, because first of another kind of related fact here is there are actually two norms in, for people who teach the Buteyko method. Why? Because there is a medical norm which is again like medical textbooks provide, like, let's say uh, six liters a minute, 10-12 breaths a minute at rest. You have to have about half liter for one breath, which is tidal volume. So if you multiply six, six uh, liters, so six liters, how we get six liters? Uh, half liter, 12 breaths a minute. So that would be, would be six liters in one minute, very small amount, minute of course, uh, of air at rest. Uh, and uh, 40 millimeters mercury or 5.3% at sea level of carbon dioxide in the arterial blood. So, so there are a variety of other kinds of related to venous blood, oxygen levels, and so on. So, uh, that, and uh, control pause normal number would be about 40 seconds. And medical studies from about 100, 120 years ago indeed show that just ordinary people used to have at the beginning of this of the previous century, about 40 seconds uh, for the holding time test on, on exhale without any stress. Uh, whereas Dr. Boteka normal would be way more rigorous. It's 60 seconds for the CPO control post-test, four liters about four liters for ventilation, and maybe about eight breaths a minute. So it's a bit even slower uh, breath day and night. So there's a kind of certain changes here. So that's about his norm and to achieve that norm is actually very hard because not so many practitioners have this norm and achieve it or experience it, like we say, for some days. So this. And it's, it's difficult for people to achieve that norm because of many different factors based on what I've read in the book. So as you said earlier, it's, there's a lot of activities and maybe it's not so much just about like the exercise alone. It's, the activities that are contributing to the overbreathing pattern that people are experiencing. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You, uh, uh, in, in order to achieve the norm, students need to address many, many factors. We are talking about tens of factors in general. And big problem here is probably would be uh, some requirements which uh, uh, lead students to success could be relatively uh, uh, restricted in terms of time. For example, most time-consuming activities which would lead to success in students would be physical exercise and breathing exercise. 
And probably physical exercise may take even a bit longer time for advanced students. We should spend a bit more time. Uh, so Boteca method in a way was a technique which uh, kind of based on and in, in terms of achieving and maintaining very good health on physical exercise. And Dr. Boteca was also very clear about this uh, fact or this discovery that he made already again in 1960s that in terms of uh, we can ask like kind of two uh, different questions. So I, I hear these questions all the time from students. In terms of, again, we are now very, very sick, so we have 70% mortality from lifestyle diseases, and this mortality was 10 times or probably even more, uh, less, let's say, at the beginning of the previous century, 1900, 1910, 1920. And people ask two types of questions, so why we are so sick now and why people in the past were so healthy? So mm -hmm. two, two kind of things. Answering this part, why people in the past were so healthy, uh, Dr. Buteka had a very strong belief, and uh, his doctors as well, at whom he trained, that people just had way more physical exercise because it was totally different time. No cars, no computers, no cell phones. So jobs were very different, of course, like more than 90% of people would have jobs which involved labor, physical labor, moving and moving your body up to six, eight, maybe 10 hours or more every day. So a lot of physical exercise often quite heavy physical exercise, and that would allow them to stay healthy. Of course, people may say we had like virtually all food was organic, water was super pure, and that, that, that is also right. That would be, of course, correct to say that all food was organic in 1900, for example, and so on. So uh, then uh, that would be one part of the equation. And so here we can see this uh, kind of related factor that physical exercise actually uh, was treated by Dr. Buteik as a kind of necessary or maybe central part of health of people. So that would be, of course, in a certain way, very abnormal for a medical doctor or like family physician to tell, or oh, that's actually physical exercise that makes people super healthy or very healthy, or give a single factor that allows them to stay healthy. So that's how he would describe that. And that's kind of a factor related to uh, this uh, topic related to, okay, why people in the past were so healthy in comparison with people that live right now. Yeah. So that here, physical exercise would be one of the factors, yeah, but it's again like factor which uh, kind of quite complex and uh, difficult in terms of it, it, it creates a certain lifestyle which our culture does not embrace. Our culture does not like <laughs> people who, yeah, who do it like whatever, two hours, three hours of exercise. And in terms of time, Dr. Bottega was, usually he would talk about, in my understanding, relatively easy exercise, like such as walking. But his demands would be somewhere about uh, four, five, six hours a day. And that would allow students to have uh, really good results for this proposing time test, probably would achieve like any results uh, they want. Of course, again, would be other uh, would be other limiting or restricting factor. But if they wanted to achieve ninety seconds or two minutes, two and a half minutes for this test, and it seems to be three minutes maximum, people can achieve uh, for this type of test that I described you know, on, on exhale and without any uh, any stress, as well as having as little maybe as few as three four breaths a minute for automatic one conscious breathing, so people can slow down their breath down to this like kind of insanely low numbers 
Mm. Very, very little briefing, which, by the way, also was a bit kind of interesting and surprising for me to uh, discover long ago when I was searching all books on yoga, that they came to the same results, the same conclusion that actually yoga masters, if you try maximum breath hold, would be about seven, eight, nine minutes, but it would be on inhalation, you see, on, on large inhalation. Uh, whereas if we convert these numbers to numbers on exhale, or usual, usual exhalation, not forceful exhalation, usual exhale and ordinary exhalation, so-called, uh, that would be, again, would be somewhere around two and a half, three minutes time, would be very similar numbers. And having about three breaths a minute, also something which could be found in quite old, let's say, 20s, 30s, 40s books on Hatha yoga and some other types of yoga, when we still practice mostly the correct or right forms of yoga. Because it's, it's not good. like another big topic, we spent another one, two hours just talking about yoga and how it changed during the last uh, about 60, 70 years, probably. Hmm. So, so you'd say it's changed for the better, or for the worse, or it's just different? Oh, for generally for worse, because first of all, 60, 70 years ago, yoga was way more about breath and way more about doing pranayama or slow and long in terms of time, duration, and breathing exercises. So these days, yoga more about postures and asanas, and breathing uh, takes quite small part, not only it is small part, it is usually the part where students are not encouraged because teachers do not see value in uh, certain changes, let's say in the way how we practice pranayama or other slow, long type of breathing exercises. Because in the past, we had clear understanding what is, what is the goal and how to move towards this goal. Now, we don't have it. Uh, with very, very rare exceptions, of course, talking about yoga teachers around the world. So the medical norm for the controlled pause would be 40 seconds, you said, correct? And then yes, yeah, there could be medical studies, both, both studies, but also some sport physiology textbook which mentioned this number as a and then Buteco's standard, Buteco's standard was 60 seconds. And then you can get beyond that. You can go to 90 and then three minutes, you said? Yes, you, you know, yeah, you can, absolutely. But that's very rare. Very few people actually went on the West. It would be just probably single individuals whom I know. But Dr. Buteco had some of his uh, doctors whom he trained to achieve this level and to achieve two and a half, uh, two, two and a half, three minutes. 90 seconds, and we described a variety of changes actually that took place at these levels, particularly, let's say, women may have like painless childbirth, people mm -hmm. start to, um, people are able to digest, uh, let's say, uh, well, Dr. Butek was saying that at very high CPs, people are able to digest nails, as he described, which is probably true, but in my view, what would be more uh, important from practical viewpoint, I probably people are able to digest bones. The same like, for example, you know, cats, dogs, they, they can do that. Humans can, <laughs> no, no, normally cannot, but it seems to be that there are some changes that take place in the uh, power of our digestive system when we achieve high level uh, of uh, like breathing retraining. Not only that, uh, let's say people are able to uh, sleep much, much less. Commonly, which I found on tens of students who might train with 60 seconds CP, people usually sleep four 
maybe rarely four and a half or five hours without trying to restrict this. So we just can, cannot sleep longer. We just don't want to sleep longer, even, even if we try. So uh, at 90 seconds and high, people probably would be sleeping somewhere around three hours. And Dr. Buteka himself would be sleeping about two hours every mm -hmm. night. Like that's again common pattern, which I found again uh, was an interesting discovery for me many years ago. That yoga books mentioned the same number, like yoga master. If you're real yoga master, you should be sleeping two hours a day. That's one of the main things that stuck out to me while I was reading your book, and I was fascinated by that because I would love to be able to sleep like two to three hours and still function. So. What, what if you're like exercising regularly? So I know that he recommends just light physical activity, but what if yes. it's people that are weightlifting or people that are professional athletes, maybe? Oh yeah, absolutely. Players? No, that's, that's uh, yeah, that's of course very important. <laughs> Practically in terms of like time investments topic. Uh, uh, I believe that people are able to exercise way, way less time. And it seems to be that somewhere around uh, two hours a day of intensive exercise with additional probably about an hour of walking here and there, you know, like go shopping or like whatever, like small walks throughout the day. Uh, that probably would be enough for a person to get pr practically any CP result. So somewhere at this level. Now, here would be another kind of factor which probably would be like a discovery that we made with our students during the last years, that it's not necessary. And it's even better not to have this exercise in one session, because I myself would in the past, long, let's say 10, 15 years ago, would likely to do a two hour session, maybe in one, one session during the day. So I found it's way easier, especially when you're talking about like some uh, running exercises or other, uh, to do it in this two or even three sessions because recovery from muscles and probably even accumulation of injuries less so the body somehow able to recover faster and easier if you have short exercise sessions throughout the day so and yes it's possible to have it uh, way less and our students also use many other like fancy techniques let's say like with training mask also teach students how to make diy training mask like Use like the, the training mask, which is like you can buy on Amazon or trainingmask.com, or yeah, the similar version of that. And to also breathing practices, breathing some breathing exercises while doing physical exercise as well. So we all would be assisting factors. Plus, of well, exercise is again kind of big to topic. I usually, when I teach practitioners, I describe it and discuss it by uh, health zones where students are in, and that relates to health, to take a health table, or to take a table of health zones, so-called, which is usually behind me <laughs> when I have videos on my YouTube channel. Yeah, but I am now in the hotel and traveling, so I have it with me, but I thought that would be not, not so easy, like, you know, in a hotel to put, to, to put it on the, on the wall. So, uh, but the idea there is uh, the, this CP numbers, so-called control post numbers, as Dr. Buteke discovered, we are tightly linked for many, many health conditions. And that what relates again like, asthma, hypertension, diabetes, like you know, common conditions, cancer, and so on, which is great because uh, then uh, even uh, uh, symptoms and medication 
would be tightly linked to the health level. This is what Dr. Buteki discovered. It would be uh, very uh, kind of uh, practically important number, this CT test result. And that's why our students do these measurements uh, when they wake up in the morning as the first thing in order to uh, just see what is the current health level. So, and therefore, yeah, this like Buteki table of health zones according to Dr. Buteki and again, experience of our students would be also very consistent with their results. It gives a quite clear picture in terms of, okay, what is your current health state? And yeah, then you, uh, my, again, explanation of physical exercise would relate to these zones because for different zones would be different effects and how people practice. The very first step that we teach to our students uh, to start physical exercise while breathing 100% through the nose in and out. So in through the nose out. Therefore, more than 90% of people, of course, absolutely abnormal. Probably 98, 99% of people would be abnormal because very few actually people naturally have this uh, habit uh, to breathe in and out through the nose. Statistically, it's known there are actually studies done by uh, just like by somebody else, like people who probably even don't know the Buteka method. I think it's they found during one cross-country race with, I think, three or 4,000 participants that 99.7% of people were breathing through the mouth. Yeah. But zero, three percent or three out of 1,000 runners uh, would be breathing through the mouth. Even though I was surprised like to see Olympics and uh, you know, many Africans, all Africans, of course, due to their genetics way, uh, way more ahead <laughs> in, in in winning gold medals and even like uh, this, all these finals in Olympic Games, like probably would be all, all Africans. But what was interesting that there are many, many of them for different distances, including uh, quite short distances, so like so-called middle distance, 800, 1500, 3, 5, 3, 5K, up to marathon. And sometimes uh, Olympic champions, gold medal, like a silver medal, would run all race 100% through the world. And this is how Kenya, Ethiopia, like other countries, we would learn from childhood how to breathe, how to exercise. The I think that the, the nasal breathing is probably the thing that helped me out the most, I would say. Okay, um, excellent. Great, great to hear. So, and I see it now when I just walk in public. Like I'll see people walking down the street and they have their uh -huh. mouth open. And I'm just like, if only you knew. If only you knew. Yeah. If, Buteco mentions that you should only have your mouth open when you're speaking, eating, or drinking. And mm -hmm. uh, as you mentioned earlier, sleep is always going to be my biggest thing. I wish I could get to that two to three hour mark, <laughs> maybe one day, because I feel like I'm so much more productive throughout the day. I'd have so much more time on my hands. But um, the what I would find is that if I sleep on comfortable surfaces, if it's a soft surface, my mouth would have the tendency to open in the middle of the night. Uh -huh. so when I started mouth taping, uh, that probably gave me the biggest boost out of everything. And I know mm -hmm. it's crazy to maybe the audience that's listening, but I felt so much more rested when I only breathe mm -hmm. through my nose at night. And I, I still can't get away with not mouth taping. Like some nights I'll be able to push through and know that I'm only breathing through my mouth because I'll wake up and my mouth won't. My breath won't. Sorry, I made a little mistake right there. So I am adding in this post recording little edit just for a little bit more clarity. 
The purpose of the mouth taping at night is to ensure that I'm only nasal breathing, not mouth breathing, which is what I just said throughout the night. And I've been doing this for over a year now. It has made a tremendous difference in my sleep quality. There's been some occasions where I choose to forego the mouth tape just to see if I can kind of do this on my own now. And I can say it's quite difficult still. So I know that others are probably dealing with this issue, whether or not they know they are dealing with this issue. So on the nights where I can uh, successfully sleep throughout the night without the mouth tape on, nasal breathing only, I wake up arrested. However, on the nights that I am unsuccessful, I wake up with the famous dragon breath, the bad breath in the morning, and my mouth is extremely dry and I feel very groggy, not very well rested. So I believe this is one of the best hacks, very cheap hacks that everyone can implement right now that will make a huge difference in your life. Smell or it won't be super dry and I just feel well rested. But if I fail to mouth tape and I do mouth breathe throughout the night, then I'm kind of groggy and I just don't feel well rested. So what what's the what's the importance of breathing through the nose as opposed to the mouth? Uh, physiologically, there seems to be, I think, at least seven or 17 or 18 differences. I think we counted once on one of the Buteyka practitioner forums, and I have it also on the page, a list of probably 10 plus advantages. But the main ones would be following. Uh, one of them would be, of course, uh, something that we discussed related to carbon dioxide. So when we breathe through the nose, we have large dead volume, which is about 120, 150 milliliters. It's called dead volume. So the volume of air in our sinuses and inside throat and airways, which does not participate in gas exchange. Okay. So when we add this extra volume, we increase level of carbon dioxide in our lungs. And if we have normal ventilation perfusion mismatch in our arterial blood as well. So we have more CO2 in the body cells, better oxygenation as well. So that's CO2. Next one would be nitric oxide, which would produce in sinuses, and that gas helps to also probably would be number two was a dilator after CO2. Uh, it's also disinfect lungs, so it helps to kill germs when we inhale them through the nose. So through the mouth, we don't have this option. So the germs go kind of unaffected inside our airways, inside lungs, and then can get in the blood and then can create infection, of course. Now, next factor would be humidification of the air. So the moist narrow, of course, cover it with mucus, so air comes moist, not dry. So that, again, uh, prevents uh, tearing of airways, especially when we breathe quite heavily, let's say, during physical exercise. Uh, so humidification of the air, warming up of air, would be as well as another related factor. So altogether, we can find kind of many, many uh, differences between nose and mouth breathing. And that would kind of allow uh, people to, to realize that it is important, but practically you are absolutely right. Like I had uh, countless number of students who first kind of, oh, what a strange thing. Like I was like actually just yesterday was explaining, like meeting somebody here as well as about mouth taking. Uh, um, Kind of, it looks like word technique, strange technique, like <laughs> restrict, suffocate yourself in a way where we stay. But once people start doing that, like try just two, three nights, and we oh, just like we wake up in the morning and whole day feel different, makes of course them to love this technique. And I know that some people, will, some practitioners I train, uh, got up to 40, 50, sometimes even 60 seconds CP 
And there's we still like it, you know, we put tape on the mouth, even though like with this CP numbers and with this like uh, easy and light briefing that we have already day and night, uh, there is no way we open mouth <laughs> during sleep. So, but we still <laughs> do it. That, so that's okay with me, of course. So, but yeah, people like it. And that's why, uh, yeah, that's one of the techniques which developed, I think it was probably even developed by patients as Dr. Buteki himself described long ago in the 60s. His patients actually suggested that uh, decided to tape mouth and started to use this method long, long ago, just by realizing its important significance and usefulness. Yeah, it's really cheap. It's probably yeah, yeah, just one of the easiest hacks that anyone can. Pharmacy, yeah, micropore, free m like typical uh, hypoallergic, like all these pores. There are also a variety of now many, many. You, you can buy on Amazon like special tapes or just for taping mouth. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think I read in normal breathing that it's important to sleep on hard surfaces as well. Uh, sleeping on the hard surface, it's, it's another part of the uh, classical traditional Buteyka method. Mm -hmm. and, uh, that means Dr. Buteyka would teach all his uh, doctors, pr pr practitioners whom he trained to use this method, uh, in the, even though on, on the West seems to be not all practitioners teach it and explain it. I believe that um, it's uh, it's very useful technique, very useful technique, and especially for people who are a bit maybe overweight or have normal weight, would be having even additional benefits. There could be few situations people who are very slim or skinny, for whom it may be a bit discomfortable because we have too many bones, you know. So, uh, and people who have severe sleeping problems would be another group for whom. I may kind of uh, be reservant or may, maybe like uh, would not even explain this technique to certain very few students who have, let's say, severe sleeping problems. But otherwise, it works really well. It allows people to have also, of course, high morning CP results. So we control post results and, of course, lighter and easier breathing throughout sleep. How it works, it seems that what happens during sleep when we have very soft surface and modern beds, of course, something which, uh, first of all, we never had before. It's we started somewhere in about 30s and 40s, 1930s, 1940s, where human cells who invented a variety of uh, kind of abnormal, <laughs> abnormal pieces of furniture, such as armchairs, sofa couches. So because 1920s and before they were just, they did not exist, they were not popular. People would like standing and people would do even like uh, these office jobs, even white collar and blue collar, like in shops and so on, would do standing uh, in banks, uh, offices. People also would be walking standing all day long. Now, uh, so we've invented invention of these soft uh, types of furniture and uh, uh, patent mantras also appeared because we, we also did not have those medieval times, like we even did not sleep horizontally, seems to be. Now, so with invention of soft surfaces, and when people sleep on them in the horizontal position, there is a very strong tendency to sleep in the same position without uh, changing it for long periods of time, one, one and a half, two or more hours. Okay, And then when this happens, it seems that body circulation somehow is compromised. Can imagine like if you lie on one part, like certain organs, tissues, 
we would get probably a little better blood supply, but some others due to compression, due to the kind of uh, physical position would get reduced blood supply. And that of course not healthy for like whatever, maybe some you maybe have inflammation in some part or some infection or whatever, like some wounds needs to be healed or repaired and so on. So therefore, like here what happens with, uh, because of that, it seems, it, it seems that breathing becomes heavy and heavy when people sleep in the same position for a long period of time. Once you change position, your breathing immediately becomes lighter, less heavier. So you become kind of, uh, in a way, a bit healthier when you change position. But at the same time, like what psychologically is known, because I taught this technique to many students, and I tried myself many times to kind of to see, okay, what are the differences between different sleep positions? Uh, the difference would be, of course, following that when you have hard surface, and by hard surface, I mean, let's say if you have a wooden floor and you put a thin blanket or let's say one towel or two, just two towels, like two ordinary towels on the floor. So you can imagine it would be really hard surface. Uh, then sleeping on this surface would result in the um, more frequent waking up. So you would wake up, oh gosh, like it hurts. Let me change position, you change position, you fall asleep again. And you wake up again, again, again. So throughout the night, you will awake, wake up many, many more times when you have a hard bed. Uh, and maybe psychologically it's possible that a person would say, oh, that was quite a bad night, like I was waking up so many times, but the CP would be higher, and if you pay attention to the quality of your day, you would be also having a better day, you would be having functioning better in terms of your like, mental clarity and other factors, maybe even like physical exercise. I, I, haven't, I haven't seen studies, but actually very few people even studied effects of uh, having heart beds. Left, right, sleep positions, uh, quite a lot of research exists in the Western world about this factor, but hard beds, uh, very few people studied uh, this effect. So that's why uh, kind of Dr. Buteka liked the idea and that's why it became part of the traditional classical Buteka method, sleeping on hard surface. Uh, maybe, well, there are many, sleep kind of uh, by, by itself very complex topic, so some people may also would benefit from having a confined bed if they wake up at night or we have like problems with insomnia. So it's, it depends. When people are sick and we have CPs less than 20 seconds, that could be quite common. When we are talking about more advanced students who have already, let's say, 30 seconds in the morning, uh, would be a very different picture and very different things they complain about. So it seems like the if people are waking up on these hard surfaces and the higher your cp is and the less sleep you need so sleep is not the rejuvenation tool that we've been led to believe or people yeah yeah that's, yeah that's interesting topic yeah but you are right also mentioning the people the sleep tends to be shorter as well and that also has maybe a partially psychological explanation why because uh, according to dr buteka we need to go to sleep when you really, really sleep. So when you start yawning, you like start to maybe teeth, almost tears running, you want to kind of, you know, like touch your eyes and so on, the eyes become a little bit itchy and your body becomes weak and you know, now I'm ready really to fall asleep very fast. So that's a good time to go to sleep. Why? Because you see like when you have very soft surface, there's a big tendency to go to bed earlier. 
And a lot of people these days, it's kind of part of the culture as well. You know, we turn on TV, it takes like popcorn, you know, Coca-Cola. <laughs> and so we watch TV and like life on the soft surface, very, very unhealthy practice, of course, flying in the horizontal position and eating and so on. Now, when you have very hard surface, <laughs> you probably would not have like this inclination or desire to go to sleep here because it's so uncomfortable to go to sleep. And the same in the morning as well, because in the morning, like according to Dr. Buteka, okay, you wake up, get out from the bed as soon as possible. So get, get busy with life. If you really sleepy, get a nap throughout the day, but just don't go into horizontal posture for this nap. No sleep in the, that's where sofa, couches, armchairs are good for, for a nap during the day whatever, five, 10 minutes usually very kind of refreshing, especially for ICT students. Now, talking about uh, duration of sleep, how it became short and why, well, let us maybe come back to Wimpo, <laughs> we skip this part. So why sleep is not about uh, recovery. It is about, in a way it is about recovery because we know we have, we consolidate our memory so like certain things I erase, we get certain things which we think are more important, more kind of in the long-term memory. There is like recovery of muscles which take place during deep, deeper stages of sleep. So when we go into delta, so theta, and therefore like you see here, kind of there is a truth in that. And there would be also a lot of studies showing that, oh, when people have like seven, seven and a half hours, we have good recovery, good sleep, and then we have a large group of people sleeping five, six hours of sleep. And we have so many complaints about headaches and having like dizziness. Uh, that would be true. Why? Because there would be a huge number among these short sleepers or people who have, let's say, sleep apnea. And these people don't get deep sleep at all. Like many of them don't get deep stages at all. And we, we just don't have, uh, <laughs> so it's kind of not correct to compare that because it's like very different kind of state of sleep that we experience. And to compare that with other people who have like seven, seven and a half, seven and a half is average these days for the Western men, men to sleep. So uh, what Dr. Buteka was talking about and what he discovered, first of all, like in during, uh, during his lecture in 1968, which uh, I translated in English, it's called Buteka Lecture in the Moscow State University in 1968. He just meant, he just said plainly that sleep is a poison. So sleep is a poison, that was his experience as a doctor. And we know statistically, kind of and from epidemiological viewpoint, like from the viewpoint of clinician, that highest mortality and highest chances of uh, attacks or acute exacerbations all these heart attacks, strokes, seizures due to epilepsy and so on and so forth, take place during sleep. So people are most likely to die from four to seven o'clock in the morning, regardless of the name of disease that we have. So that, this is like physiological law, that physiological fact. And that makes again like, okay, <laughs> if, if people recover and recover during sleep, why we die from 4 to 7 a.m.? <laughs> so it does not make any sense. <laughs> so, so we recover, well, we of course hyperventilate uh, heavier, even heavier from 4 to 7 a.m. And that makes them to die and to have these acute attacks uh, during sleep. So uh, now why people re recover faster and more effectively when we have more CO2. Well, here we need to think about, again, properties or abilities of carbon dioxide in relation to our brain and muscles, because this is what seems to be 
main physiological um, needs of sleep are to kind of to make our brain recover and then to, to recover also to restore our muscles. So in relation to the brain, again, these activities of the brain, CO2 is very powerful sedative or formative or kind of agent for the human brain. So that make people very calm and nervous system function way, way more, uh, more stable when people have more CO2. So that's why all type of abnormalities in relation to the nervous system become more and more common when people have heavy and heavier breathing and BCP gets lower and lower and lower. So nervous system function in a very different way. So people are able to again have fewer cycles of sleep. Because what, what happens when we have high and high CP, the whole cycle comes out. For many students, I know, like let's say I started when I started myself, my CP was 10 seconds. My sleep was about 11 hours. Wow. I get CP 20 seconds, my sleep was about eight hours, 30 seconds. Uh, sleep was about six, six and a half hours. With 40, 50 seconds, uh, sleep would go down to four, four and a half hours. So it was a very clear relationship, which I found in most students would be also true, uh, who, whom I trained. Would be a few number of people, let's say, like with, with sleep apnea, I had opposite situation sometimes. We start and we sleep five, six hours, but this is very bad sleep. It's horrible sleep they have. That's why CP, CPAP machine help them to have better sleep quality. Now, when they, but when they improve the uh, respiration, they slow, slow down their breath, the sleep gets longer, but it's of good quality now. And later, it starts to decrease when, if they manage to progress to really high numbers. So muscles, brain, we discussed now, okay, what about muscles? Well, CO2 is a very powerful muscle relaxant. This is also another known fact. So that's why thousands of people, you, can find my, I have video about like how to relieve constipation in one minute, you know, with breath holding exercise. I think it has like half million views. It was mostly from the past when it was easier to put this video and to get a lot of views because these days, like maybe some other videos, you know, we kind of promote it and so on, uh, easier. But you can read like there would be hundreds of people's uh, opinions, like what we write in, in the, you know, below the video. In the comments, tell me, oh, that, that actually works for me. Like, I tried it in 30 seconds, no constipation. <laughs> because uh, smooth muscles of the colon, particularly smooth muscles, particularly react extremely fast. And smooth muscles we have again in the colon, around our blood vessels, around airways, we have special types. They are called smooth muscles because skeletal muscles they are different, and heart muscles would be another type of muscles. But we all would be still dependent. And we would all be uh, responsive to high CO2 levels in terms of their relaxation. So that's why kind of sleep, uh, high CO2 allows people to sleep shorter time and recover their muscles faster and easier. Now, Wim Hof, we forgot about this one you asked about, like, oh, Wim Hof asked about 30, 50 times of hyperventilation. <clears throat> Wim Hof method is uh, much more known, and he probably himself would agree with this idea that it's more kind of about using cold rather than uh, doing something with breath. Particularly, he would probably would not say at all that his technique is about breathing retraining. 
Okay, so he uses briefing for kind of for some other purposes, which maybe some other people may do also for something else. Let's say uh, Stanislav Grof may use it for rebirthing technique. So people may have some kind of according to his understanding ideas, thoughts which may be suppressed and we hyperventilate. They can come up on the surface. People can kind of make them make them themselves realize and to speak them out. For example, this thing which may be kind of hidden from them even. So, and for Wim Hof, this technique is used to get into cold water as well. So that was kind of central part why he would suggest 30-50 breaths as a method how to uh, get used to extremely cold conditions, such as again, going into ice cold water or when you go into sea, like all these experiences when it's all very, very cold shower, of course, as well, would be another example. So, when you want to take ice cold shower. I found myself and I asked many, many students, we would say, oh, that's, that's true. The use of this Wim Hof uh, additional technique, like uh, 30, 50 deep, fast breaths, and you can do it through the mouth, like basically hyperventilation. You can uh, go and use cold water, way more comfortable. You would find it just, just psychologically much, much easier to use because the Boteki method is also and a bit harsh in this way, uh, a bit kind of uh, ascetic and difficult in terms of uh, the traditional classical Boteki use of cold water would be to use cold water very gradually. So you would say you have very, very cold one arm, another arm, one leg, another leg. Or if you have warm water running, you just turn the knob, you know, a little bit colder, wait five seconds, little bit, little bit, little bit. So like kind of gradual transition, this prevents hyperventilation, according to Dr. Butek, and this is absolutely right. But Wim Hof is actually a very tricky technique because when you use these 30, 50 breaths, uh, it can be used as a part of so-called uh, DIY hypoxic training. And that involves another technique, which I teach to students and of course to practitioners as well, how you can use this uh, special exercise and we do it as a series of exercises which can last 20 or maybe a bit more minutes. That's one exercise which involves uh, fast heavy breathing and it would involve breath holding and then it would also involve reduced breathing for about two, three, four minutes. Mm -hmm. well, and therefore you see that you use this hyperventilation as a only initial part which would allow you to experience very, very low level of blood oxygenation, which you cannot achieve otherwise without special equipment. And by special equipment, I mean you can get special air, special machines. And I studied this technique myself, used it myself for many, many months. Like uh, this so-called, it's a whole area of research with like hundreds of doctors working in this area, inventing new devices, new machines, treatment of certain conditions with extreme success for some groups of patients. And it's called intermittent hypoxic hyperoxic training, IHHT. And this is a very new area. We have, again, doctors worldwide. I met like with uh, how many? Three, three different practitioners, including two quite, uh, one leading practitioner probably in the world who use this technique. So Wim Hof allows us to achieve very, very high, uh, low level of blood oxygenation, which you can easily measure with, oh gosh. This simple, I have it <laughs> accidentally right here. You know, this device, which is called a pulse oximeter, you can put your finger, you know, you can start measuring and 
it's, it's going to show your blood oxygenation. Now, well, you see like your blood oxygenation would be whatever, like numbers 97, 98, 99, probably for most people. And if you try to get it to lower numbers, even like let's say as low as 92 or 90 or below 90, that would be extremely difficult. You probably, if you try to reduce briefing or briefing much, much lesser, you would not be able to do that. But if you use this Wim Hof method, our students are able to get below HT. Some people, some students, advanced students I trained would go even to 70 or below 70. We have reduced briefing and using Wim Hof method at the same time. So that's what makes, it's, it's another big area of research how this temporary experience of very low hypoxia, how it helps to repair um, mitochondria, some like cells, and uh, it's it's again like a big part of research, but it can be very, very beneficial in terms of people having effects, even in relation to the briefing training. So the four kind of four, it's a one of the techniques which could be used as well for briefing training, as well as for again like could be used as even as part of the Boteca method. It's not, again, a technique which has its goal to retrain our breath. Okay, so that's why. So what would, um, how would you define hypoxia for those that don't know? Uh, well, hy well <laughs> hypoxia is like, it could be the direct translation, it would be just low oxygen level. And uh, people may think about like, even like professionals or doctors could, could, could think about hypoxia in different terms. Two probably most common terms would be, okay, we can have hypoxia when we have two level of oxygen in the outer air. And that happens at high altitude, for example, or when you breathe special mixtures from devices. So that's how you, what, how you can experience hypoxia in terms of, uh, again, hypoxic air. So let's say if you go to 6,000 uh, feet, or two, two, two uh, kilometers higher altitude. So you would have probably about twice less air uh, than at sea level. So that's one level of hypoxia. For our purposes and something which we may discuss earlier today, hypoxia would relate to the state of our cells or tissues. And that is reflected in a totally different uh, test and result that would be low result for the CT test. So somebody who has uh, less than 10 seconds CP, probably from clinical or medical viewpoint, could be diagnosed as someone who has hypoxia. Ser serious level of hypoxia, low level of oxygen in cells of the brain, heart, and other organs. And that can be, of course, extremely dangerous for both organs, especially heart and brain. And other organs, of course, would suffer. Immune system would suffer, would be many, many abnormalities, which uh, would be linked to hypoxia. So that's, and would be a bunch of kind of effects resulting from hypoxia. Let's say one of the very strong common effect due to hypoxia is production of uh, large amounts of lactic acid, which also associated with pain because you don't want, so when you don't have oxygen, the body starts to produce energy using uh, not aerobic because of, when you have oxygen, you have aerobic metabolism, but anaerobic. And therefore, that would lead to production of lactic acid. Such people would have elevated blood lactate 24 hours per seven, and they would commonly complain about a lot of chronic fatigue. You see, this is what they have. So it would be too much lactic acid due to 
simple, simple hyperventilation. So I don't know if this is kind of off the wall or if this is uh, getting out of your territory, but go figure. I actually started reading the book at the like peak of COVID. So what um what implications does like the hyperventilation that most people are currently experiencing, whether they know it or not, what relationship does the chronic overbreathing have to COVID, if you know? And what um, yes, yeah. Yeah. would the retraining the breathing help as a better alternative to what they were doing in the hospitals with the ventilation machines? Yes, no, absolutely. That would have a huge impact on uh, on even on the spread of the disease. Uh, I, I'm certain that pandemic would not exist if we had people uh, with more than 20 seconds CP as a norm, let's say, let's say 90% or more of all people around the world would have 20 plus seconds for the morning CP. Uh, COVID pandemic would not exist. It would be weaker than any flu. So would be nothing at all. Now, I, I have a couple of videos about COVID. One of them was done at the very, very early stage of COVID when COVID just started. Was it 2020 probably, yeah? Mm -hmm. uh, and it, I think video was done in May when we just got first statistic. Uh, I was curious about what we are doing with sick people who have COVID, why? Because, well, first of all, uh, when people die from COVID, they die from lung failure. And we, so we, we have a lot of pollution related to the lungs. So we have symptoms of shortness of breath, a lot of cough. And so we have a respiratory infection in the lungs. And that completely relates to asthma, COPD, and other like symptoms related to these conditions. And we know that we develop also, we can develop only if a person has less than 20 seconds for the CP test. So, because with 20 plus seconds, the immune system is strong enough to deal with these pathogens naturally, so you, you don't even notice them, the same way as it happens with probably thousands of different germs which enter human body every day. So COVID should be technically the same. Now, what, happens, uh, what happened at this time in uh, May 2020, when I made first video, I was curious, okay, I knew that some doctors actually already smart enough uh, to prevent sick people from sleeping on the back in hospitals when we are in critical care and emergency and we have like kind of fighting with death already. And at this moment of time, <clears throat> uh, there were already several studies published about doctors starting to understand and realize the huge importance of sleep position in terms of reduction in mortality probably by about factor of seven, 10 times, just by this factor alone, sleeping position at night. So it's how we lie down the patient. Mm -hmm. Now, what I found at this moment of time, uh, I was looking at statistics in different countries in relation to COVID mortality. And uh, by this time already, we already had like tens of thousands of patients around the world. And one country I found that had extremely low mortality in comparison with other countries. Why? Because when COVID came to, let's say, Europe and later United States, Mexico, for many, many months, the mortality was at the level 10, 15 or more percent. Very, very high. You can imagine 10, 15 percent. This is what happens in, the, in Spain, in the UK as well, like in April, May, June. 
uh, of uh, 2020, when COVID just arrived to Europe and United States a bit later. So mortality was extremely high. Uh, I, I was looking for mortality again, like uh, among different countries, and I found one country where my mortality was 0.05%, 200 times less. <laughs> 200 times. So, uh, and I was looking again, okay, what, what was going on? What was wrong? We had already by this time 50,000 patients with COVID, but mortality was like, I think just seven people died. You know? <laughs> so it, it was less than ordinary flu, the mortality that we got from COVID. And I was curious, okay, what did we do exactly? That was Singapore in 2020 in May. And uh, well, uh, you know, like doctors, they're supposed to do this job themselves. Okay, there is, if there is a country with such a positive uh, effect of the measures in relation to COVID, uh, why we don't want to scale it to other countries and get the same result. So uh, I found an article printed, uh, uh, published in South China Morning Post. It's very large newspaper, even though it's a little bit long name, South China Morning Post. We have online articles. I think it's probably like very old newspaper as well. But it's very popular, very popular newspaper on the east, of course, like China, all these Asian countries, where we described when one doctor uh, provided the experience, and he described actually three factors that we did in Singapore differently. And the first factor that he mentioned that he did, he told that we did not allow supine, supine sleep for the patients, so we could not sleep on their back, so we were pre preventing sleeping on the back. And that was again, like uh, according to my estimates, would give about seven ten times reduction in mortality in anywhere else in the world. Later, we, we did not tell that much in the public, because later all these countries I mentioned, like United States, Canada, Spain, uh, the UK, uh, we started to do the same. That's why the mortality dropped so dramatically, because we had up to 10, 12, 15% mortality at the beginning of COVID. We started to prevent basic points. The mortality dropped by about Again, like seven, ten times probably, close to one percent to level which we had uh, for many, many months later. Now, another two factors which was mentioned in South China Morning Post were we uh, were asking the patients to do some minimum amount of physical exercise, okay? and the, the, without providing further details. But of course, we would not be able to invent anything like particularly new. Most likely, we would ask the patient just to breathe through the nose during physical exercise. And last factor that we mentioned, we also mentioned that we actually made some changes in diet, also without providing any specifics. But here again, like if you work in uh, related uh, areas related to diet, where doctors study diet, and these days, like thousands of doctors, like it's already became during the past 10 years kind of norm, even like leading medical techs, uh, medical uh, schools around the world, we already started to include uh, courses in diet for future doctors. So, and of course, in these courses, we teach things which work. And during the last 10 years, probably the biggest change that took place, 10, 15 probably years, starting from the United States, later Europe, would be a big, big increase in uh, medical practitioners, doctors, uh, Nutri dietologists, nutritionists uh, using low carb ketogenic type of diets and even even more kind of stricter type of diets going to like carnivore diets, zero carb diets and so on. 
So because like there is kind of not so much we could invent, I mean, in, in Singapore. So most likely we just moved in this direction. Why that would be also having huge impact because inflammation is a very, very uh, significant factor uh, during last stages of COVID. And this diet particularly well uh, designed to address to prevent inflammation, to reduce inflammation in the whole body because ordinary diets just would not have this effect. I believe I just read it earlier today that, um, so are you a proponent of those diets, the ketogenic and the carnivore? Would you say those are beneficial for most people or? Well, most, uh, it's hard to say that would be most, it's, it's a, a diet by itself, like again, huge topic, but it's certainly talking about severely sick people. I believe there is a, would be a very, very large number of severely or critically ill or dying people for whom uh, applying this diet is probably could be the only way to go or the sure way to go as probably like the most studied or the way that I would certainly ad advise them to use as soon as possible. So would be uh, this kind of answer I can give. In terms of people who are relatively healthy, who have good digestion, I have a couple, couple of books on digestion on Amazon as well, uh, describing kind of what I discovered and uh, in relation to uh, breathing retraining and diet, I believe the biggest kind of single factor, which I always teach to students and practitioners as well, would be about having a state of the uh, digestive system when you eat food that does not cause you harm. So when, when you do not get adverse reactions from food that you eat. And we measure it by having again like cleaner gut or like talking about, okay, well, how we can, uh, can we have like simple kind of measurements because doctors we, these days, we would do different tests and we know that in sick people, there is large tendency to have biofilms or biofilm, uh, film in the digestive tract, the layer of pathological bacteria inside the gut and having also increased intestinal permeability which is more commonly known as a leaky gut syndrome. So doctors do special tests again for those, but it seems that from experience of our student that there's very simple test which people can do themselves and which can reflect the state of gut really well. And that would be the test which um, kind of, I call it not the test even, I call it the so-called no soiling effect or soiling effect, well, we can have like both of them. So soiling means the state when you require toilet paper. So when you soil yourself after your bowel movements and the amount of toilet paper and the, like what happens there, it also like if, if your stool going to leave marks, if, if it has offensive smell, there are many, many kind of factors which also would reflect the state of flora in your gut, what is going on in your digestive system. It's kind of hidden from us, but we have the outcomes. So therefore we can analyze those factors. So what, uh, what I noticed a long time ago, asking like advanced students who get 50, 60 seconds CP, that it was extremely common for them to have no soiling at all. And uh, so, and that would happen because of briefing retraining. Whereas later we started also to apply, probably up to about already five, six, seven years ago. And my, uh, in recent years, of course, as well, would be even more larger number of students would start to use low-carb diets, like taking out all starches, grains, and so on. 
And they would sometimes say, like, I had many, many students like this. They say, oh, in two, three days, we say, oh, I, I have no soiling now at all. Even though we would require toilet paper all their life. <laughs> so for them, it would be, of course, like, kind of a very, uh, and for most people, that would be an abnormal experience because carbs would be number one uh, type of food, I believe, that causes soiling. Poo chewing would be a huge factor here as well because uh, we had also many students who just start super good chewing and eating maybe carbs in more kind of dried form. You know, like eating, let's say, rice cake, not rice, but rice cakes. You know, not just bread, but dried bread and chewing it very, very well. So it's possible also to achieve kind of way, way better gut flora. But uh, cutting carbohydrates, just another kind of simple option people can do. And that would also be a huge factor in, in achieving no soiling. As well as uh, I just heard many, many, like even just like uh, from recent students and practitioners just like weeks ago, a month ago, hearing from them that, oh, now I know like with, uh, with changes in diet, once I eat pizza, I get just more soiling next day. So that's, that's how, how I, I see that it's actually is, is a factor, is a big factor. Or pasta or whatever, like something which uh, can, can cause this type of effect. So therefore, my kind of uh, central idea here would be to, to, to my students, I tell oh, just you achieve, achieve no soiling and like if this diet produces no soiling, you have clean bowel moments. Um, yeah, you, you're mainly good with your diet. It might be some, of course, fewer because it would be still a lot of maybe some nutrients, some other effects related to diet here. But it, at least number one uh, problem, which again exists like probably 99% of general population, this problem would be solved. You may have just saved a lot of people some money on toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be also kind of. The, the last question that I really want to ask on the diet, just because I had it pulled up, was uh, it says methods of food preparation processing their effects on breathing. So raw mm -hmm. has a small effect compared to fried, grilled, and deeply fried, those would have a very large effect, so. Yes, and Kent would be probably among the worst, according to Dr. Butek and Russians, because they would actually list even those type of foods in the manuals, because I read many in, 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 uh, resources, manuals in, in Russian about that. Yeah, they would start with raw as the best type of food to eat. Yeah, and uh, yeah, raw, frozen probably would be next one. Dried would be another one. Enzymes would be already lost. Uh, then would be what probably light cooking already, some preparation techniques. And then man, you, those that you mentioned, deeply fried or grilled would be among the worst. Because especially when you start to make food like a little bit yellow or brown, especially, it would be already those things which are used by some doctors to produce cancer, for example, in mice, artificially, like the, when doctors want to investigate cancer, we start to feed mice, you know, with these chunks of burnt food and we develop cancer in the colon. So, uh, and uh, yeah, those and probably canned would be among the foods which would be in metal cans, of course, not glass jars would be a safe option, safe, safe alternative to use. So yeah, this is this makes sense. Yeah, that's ideas. Yeah, Dr. Buteka explained. So you would eat like raw meats too? <laughs> uh, uh, well, I, I myself may eat sometimes too. Yeah, my raw liver. I would, I, I myself, I probably would likely to soak it in vinegar. 
Mm. Depending on type of, because you know, some livers could be. It's also the very variable. Like if I, like recently, let's say about some organic chicken liver or organic turkey liver. It's a big problem because you know when you buy liver from so many animals, uh, chances of getting like salmonella, botulism, like all these fancy things, like uh, way higher. So it would be probably better. Like I, I would just likely fry them very very lightly just or boil very fast like just one minute and so on uh but when you're talking about like you get oh you get like liver from some calf you know calf liver can be very large or like uh, lamp liver so uh, pork liver pork probably better if you buy organic but those uh, would be from one animal you can slice it those well, those are it depends if it's beef liver, a bit tough, this one probably would be better to soak in vinegar, but those softer ones, you can eat it straight, or you, you may soak it. Soaking also can, in vinegar also can help to kill some germs. So uh, meat, yeah, it depends. Meat grinder is a great thing to use, you know, grinding meat and you can eat it right away as well. So that depends yeah, on this person's situation. But that would be certain behaving uh, surprisingly like I, when I discovered it was a long time ago, I don't know. It was a really like start of my kind of briefing training career, like really, really like at the beginning of this century. Yeah, I was surprised like eating like this raw uh, meat, raw fish, uh, just goes like like the fruit, you know, like almost no changes in briefing. Like does not make your breath as heavy when you eat the same food uh, cooked particularly meats, for example, or fish. So would you, of course, big difference in terms of faster digestion and briefing, easier briefing training. Plus, of course, using of spices was something which Dr. Budek was also ahead of time for decades. Well, spices, it's a very, very new area as well, because I think 90, even 1990s were very few, if any, research papers done on uh, positive effects of spices, whereas like starting, I think probably 2000, uh, this, this first decade of this century, where there were like thousands, like explosion of research on uh, positive effects of various spices, uh, so-called synergetic effect of spices, which also Dr. Butek emphasized when we have variety of many, many, let's say five, seven, 10 or more different types of spices in one meal, so very positive effect on production of digestive enzymes, faster digestion, suppression of pathogens. So kind of many, many benefits from using uh, this type of foods, provided that again, you don't have any adverse reactions. You should not use something which again, cause you indigestion or some symptoms. How do you manage this while you're on the road? Cause you travel a lot, so. Uh, yeah, that's, that's the thing. Yeah, of course you have to go to a big supermarket, see like some health food shops, yeah, organic food shops and see, yeah, it's, it's, it's a complex thing. <laughs> at home, yeah, when you know everything kind of at home would be a bit easier, but I usually know, yeah, places. So I know big cities. So <laughs> um, the cold exposure, you kind of touched on that before and uh, I do like ice baths. So I've done the Wim Hof trainings before. Um, and I actually, the previous guest, we were actually talking about how people nowadays are very, very comfortable. So we have the sofas and we have AC, so we can always keep a comfortable temperature for us, but we're not really ever exposed to the cold 
And you mentioned how uh, the Buteco, Dr. Buteco, he mentioned that you just pour like a little bit of cold, I guess, on your arms, like one limb at a time instead of just dousing yourself in. Because initially, if you're not accustomed to it, you're going to get like a hyperventilatory yep. response when you mm -hmm. just jump into a full cold shower. So what's the what's the importance of the cold here? And I actually believe that you mentioned in your book that we dress a little bit warmer than we should. So um, being literally overheated may be contributing to overbreathing as well. Absolutely, yeah. Overheating would be also a huge factor. Um, here it's a, it's a it's a big big kind of a tricky topic as well because uh, reactions would be also quite individual. So in terms of uh, for some people, overheating can can have a huge negative effect, a very large negative effect in terms of the uh, poor health. Now, uh, talking about what are the physiological benefits also, like it could be a list, like I have a page of benefits of cold shower on normal breathing website. Uh, people can study if they want this part. Uh, endorphins probably would be one of those which many people mentioned, but it seems to be that there is another factor which could be even more influential, and that relates to also uh, hypoxic training. Because when you, uh, well, brown fat cell production, brown fat production would be another huge one for cold exposure as well, so which I also discuss, uh, I don't remember where, on the websites or maybe in books, like videos somewhere, that uh, so uh, what would be here related to hypoxia is that we accumulate a very large amount of damaged mitochondria in cells, in cells, in muscle cells, and other organs where mitochondria exist virtually everywhere. Like this is uh, machines to produce energy, so to, to generate energy from oxygen. And we often get damaged. And we, when we become, become damaged, they cannot function normally or properly, so they kind of still present in the cell, but they don't do any useful work. And this so-called hypoxic training techniques, DIY hypoxic training techniques, so even better to use this intermittent hypoxic hyperoxic training, or DIY Wim Hof, DIY hypoxic training, which I already mentioned a little bit here, but cold shower, this is where I also like discussing with professionals in this research, where we also say, oh, actually, there are a couple of more techniques which uh, uh, give additional advantage in relation to use of hypoxia. Like I'm, I'm talking about doctors who use, uh, professionals who use this hypoxic and design and create and they produce these hypoxic machines. They're saying that actually there are two additional factors which makes the hypoxic machines and the hypoxic training for other people way more effective. One would be physical exercise and another one would be cold exposure. And cold exposure, somehow it, it's able to again to help the immune system to find and repair these damaged cells, the damaged mitochondria, so that they start to function normally. So that would be kind of additional factor, but altogether like physiological differences, it's huge. There is like, a, well, with Wim Hof, there would be also growth hormone, adrenaline, noradrenaline changes. Like it's a kind of so many things involved at the same time, even, even difficult to tell what exactly like uh, the exact mechanism, but we all seems to be providing a positive contribution 
And also, we, we are also something which kind of physiologically were common normal for humans to have in the past. It, it just seems like we're very under stimulated, especially with the brown fat, because that was a topic that uh, the previous guests also mentioned a lot too in relation to the mitochondria, how it's just kind of dormant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if obviously you can get with a tech practitioner, if you were interested, the guests that are listening um, and learning how to retrain your breathing. But Dr. Ator, what would be some quick practical tips if you had like five that people could use just on a day-to-day -day basis that could make a dramatic impact on their health? I think we discussed already today, at least probably five, those things which a lot of people find very influential and useful, such as we discussed with you, nose breathing during physical exercise, you remember, yeah? Mouth taping at night, so this is we also discussed. Then we discussed uh, prevention of supine sleep. So that would be the one, two, three, um, <laughs> four, five. Hard beds, you mentioned as well, could be one of them as well. Uh, this is again something which does not involve kind of extra time, like kind of simple trick technique. What would be else? Um, hard to tell. It could be again like for some people. I had my, many students for whom yoffing grounding would be very influential additional factor, even though it would be also students who did not find positive effects in this method at all. So it would be a kind of variety of responses. So it's kind of indi individual things. Hmm. Yeah, one of the individual things. Do you, have you ever slept grounded? Oh, yeah, many, many times I tried that, yeah. In my personal case, it has actually very little effect. Maybe once, like first time, I get little tingling and that's it. But even sleep quality seems to be not much improved. But I also tried it kind of on and off. You know, I sleep grounded like two, three nights and stop for a week or longer time. Then I try it again. Uh, in my case, not. But I, I know a lot of students who try it. And later, like we travel or whatever, like sleep with relatives, you know, visiting somewhere. And we feel, and we come back and we like test, retest, and we realize that actually as soon as we are not grounded just for one night, we sleep way worse. Mm -hmm. And then we try to sleep grounded every single night, always. So mm -hmm. that just, some people are having this type of response. Yeah. Uh, my partner actually removed, because I have a grounding sheet for my bed. She actually mm -hmm. removed it on accident without telling me the other day. And... Mm -hmm. That was the only day in probably about two years that I've woken up with a headache. And then she told me afterwards and I was like, oh, it makes, makes a little bit of sense. So I, I would say that I'm a little bit more sensitive, but I guess mm -hmm. it, it seems like there's this, uh, this level, I guess, that you can reach where you don't become as sensitive to any type of perturbations, whether that be, okay, you're ungrounded for Sleep night. I believe I believe so. That's why you know there is one strange uh, phrase, very weird phrase from yoga, which you can find actually in uh, ancient Sanskrit texts, where they say that when you become like a yoga master, like with very short sleep and of course very high CP, breath all the time, you just uh, you can start flying. This is how they translate it. <laughs> <laughs> but my, my understanding actually was that actually you don't need to get grounded, meaning that you can be on some surface where you're not 
physically, like electrically connected with Earth. In the past, it was really hard to get disconnected with Earth because we just did not have all these artificial things, you know. So therefore, it was a very kind of uncommon situation for them. But uh, it's possible that we have one the translation uh, from ancient Sanskrit to like modern English. They did not mean that you you were able to fly, but you actually probably they meant that you are not you are not uh, there is no necessity for you to be electrically connected with Earth at all when you have very very high CP. Probably this is right. <laughs> probably. <laughs> so that's my interpretation of this kind of okay. What what it is about? Like you can fly. <laughs> so may I ask what your CP currently is? Oh, it's uh, now it's it's long story because I had um, I had a big uh, for many years I did not know what was going on with my health, even though I had some breakthroughs uh, to having CPs like 50, 60 seconds, and only four years ago I discovered that I had very very high uh, level of mercury in my body. Mm -hmm. So I, I did a hair analysis about four years ago uh, in one German laboratory for heavy metals, and they discovered that my mercury level was 10 times above the upper limit. Mm. So very, very high. And I believe it was related to poisoning that took place in late 90s, very, very long time ago. I was just not aware about this uh, heavy load because very few people like or doctors even would suggest you because these tests are very expensive. And doctors like would, would never even suspect that you may have this type of problems. So the four kind of, yeah, it uh, was, uh, it caused me big health problems developing like with liver kidneys long time ago. And then it resulted also like, you know, when kidneys and liver are not able to detoxify from mercury, it starts to pile up in your digestive tract because there are pure patches in some like areas in the digestive tract, which are still able to pick up some mercury and take it out from the body when your kidneys, kidneys and liver are not working well. So and these are conspiracy people probably produce noises here who mm -hmm. may, may, may know more than I do about this mercury poisoning. So <laughs> I really appreciate your time, Dr. Tor, and this is the type of stuff that I think needs to be taught very, very early. I, I think our education system's kind of backed up. People are not learning any principles, they're not learning how to eat properly, not learning how to cook, not learning how to Sleep, uh, exercise, sleep, yeah, exercise, uh, breathe. <laughs> yeah. And, and I see like 30, 40 year olds that have graduated higher education and then they don't know what to do with their bodies. So, mm -hmm. um, can you ever foresee things like breathing retraining being, or it wouldn't be retraining if it was just taught early? Could you ever see this being implemented in the public education system? Yeah, hard, well, uh, difficult to say yeah, how many decades or centuries it may take. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. But yeah. you're a part of it, so. Yeah, thank you, thank you, James. Yeah, thank you for also promotion and doing this work. Of course. I believe yeah, it's ni nice, uh, of course, very important things for people to know about. So you have the normal breathing website. You also have the book Normal Breathing which I'll post all of, of this up in the, the show notes. Is there anywhere else where, because the normal breathing site's like a blog for you. It seems like you have many, many different articles up there. Uh, normal breathing site has more than 500 web pages. 
There we go. It's also a good resource for people to learn. There is like in the middle, learn here, where there are many, many 25 something like models, separate blocks where people learn various techniques related to breath retraining. But books, yeah, we go a little bit in more depth. And they also have like this uh, YouTube channel with covering like specific topics related to various health problems, sleep, diet, exercise, like many, many factors related to breath retraining. So would be also like people can find information yeah, there where I talk sometimes, yeah, just alone, sometimes with somebody else about these type of topics. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for your time, brother. Love your work. Love what you're doing. Okay. Thank you, James. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening to the podcast. And if you found any of this information here valuable, I would love if you would share it. Share it with someone that you think would also find value in it, or go ahead and just share it on social media. Show some love. If you tag me at King6Killer, I will reshare your story. I will reshare your post. And I would also love to hear your feedback. If you go to the backtohuman.us website, that is backtohuman.us, not .com, and go to the contact form, you can leave your feedback. I would love to hear from you. Also, if you would like to support the show under affiliations on the website, I have a bunch of products that I am affiliated with. Disclaimer, I will receive a compensation if you use my links or codes. However, these are products that I've used throughout the years on a daily basis. I only endorse products that I truly believe in. And these are things that have made a dramatic impact on my life. And I'm sure that you will see some improvement as well. So thank you again for listening to the podcast. Kill the day.